Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, exactly how many face masks have you or the entire household used since last year? Ever think about where will all those masks we throw away end up? It will more likely gum up the stream, get caught in the equipment, and they'll have to sort it out. They're not recyclable. Climate change and oceans reporter Laura Parker from National Geographic joins me in a conversation with Canada's former ambassador to the United Nations, Louise Blay, who's now acting council general of the Southeast, located right here in Atlanta. But we have had to basically close the border for non-essential travel. Mm -hmm. That has affected a lot of Canadians here in the United States. I was affected myself. My mother passed away uh, of COVID in December. I have yet to be able to go back and mourn with my family. We are waiting for everyone to be vaccinated so we can truly be together. That's all coming up. But first, from our WABE newsroom, the head of Georgia's Department of Public Health says the COVID-19 pandemic is far from over in the state. During an agency board meeting yesterday, Dr. Kathleen Toomey said there's still a long way to go to get more folks vaccinated. Yeah, we, we don't feel like we're it's over. We want to continue. We feel that we still um, many more people we can vaccinate and should vaccinate. Georgia's vaccination rate has fallen behind that of other states during much of the rollout. The latest figures from the Department of Public Health show just 39 percent of Georgians have started the process. Nationwide, that number is just over 50 percent. And in other news, at another group joining one of several lawsuits against the state of Georgia, well, over its new voting law. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference announced this week it is a plaintiff in litigation filed by the NWCP Legal Defense Fund, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and other groups that allege the new restrictions target Georgia's minority communities. At the time of this broadcast, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's office has not responded to WABE's request for comment on the mounting legal challenges to the controversial voting law. And finally, the Atlanta Hawks are on the verge of advancing to the second round of the NBA playoffs tonight if the team beats the Knicks in New York. This is something they haven't done since 2016. The Hawks are leading the best of seven series, three games to one, which means their chances of eliminating the Knicks are pretty good. Why? Well, that's what we're here for. According to Basketball Reference and Online Sports Library, a team with a 3-1 lead in the NBA playoffs goes on to win the series nearly 95% of the time. The Hawks' young star, Trey Young, get ready for a sports cliche, has been on fire in terms of scoring. The team's defense, which has been impressive in stifling Knicks star Julius Randle. The series has been physical and full of trash talk, even off the court, which is okay sometimes. Atlanta center Clint Capella even predicts a Hawks win, which would send the Knicks, in his words, on vacation. 
oh, big fella, be careful. Never know what can happen. But let's go Hawks. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Question, exactly how many face masks have you or the entire household used since last year? And remember the rush to purchase the official N95 mask? Where have all those masks gone? And for the millions still in use, not just here in North America, but the entire globe, where will those masks end up? Laura Parker is a senior staff writer at National Geographic. She covers climate change and oceans and recently authored How to Stop Discarded Face Masks from Polluting the Planet. Laura, welcome to Closer Look. Thanks for taking the time. Let's begin here because often the biggest culprit to pollution, not only in landfills and waterways, is plastic. You wrote in your piece, the tally for face masks is nearly twice that. $129 $129 billion a month. That translates into 3 million face masks used per minute. Laura, that is quite revealing. How are these numbers tallied? Yeah, those are pretty dramatic numbers. When the pandemic began a year ago, or 14 months ago, we weren't really sure what the impact was going to be on using PPE. And I'm not sure anyone realized at the front end how long it would go long on and how, how much PPE uh, was going to be involved. And in the time since then, there's, there's now a whole library of studies that have been put together about that calculate face masks, other PPE gloves uh, is another one in some cases in certain countries. And so that those things are now being published and we're sort of getting a look at really horrifyingly large numbers. And Laura, let's get some clarity for our listeners because to your knowledge, are any of the disposable masks recyclable? There are exceptions to every rule, but I would say generally, no, they're not. They mm. The instructions from most places, especially in the United States, is to dispose of your mask in your gloves in your garbage bag, which would go into landfill and seal it up. Don't just throw it in, a, in the bin because they're lightweight and they can, they can escape and be carried by the wind. If you put it in your recycling bin, it will more likely gum up the stream, uh, get caught in the equipment, and they'll have to sort it out. They're not recyclable. And do we know if burning the mask, if that is a, I think I know the answer is, if that is a environmentally safe practice that could be helpful? 
Um, probably not. Yeah. And I don't know of places, maybe in, in developing nations uh, where a lot of trash sometimes gets burned uh, in domestic households that might go in there. And I don't, I am unaware of any uh, close looks uh, by analysts as to whether that's being done and in what, in what amounts. But I think as a general rule of thumb, we could say that's a bad idea. And has any nation, you, you just talked about some nation, but has any nation, to your knowledge, devised a, a plan, not for only collecting all these masks, but then what to do with them? No, not that I'm aware of. It, they need to be disposed of as waste in your household waste that goes to the landfill. The landfills, but Laura, we also know these masks are showing up in our waterways, sewers, in the ocean. Is it time now to really start focusing on this? I mean, we know that, look, we still are encouraging people to wear masks. We know that they're the importance of it, not just the mask, but other PPE. But is now the critical time to start trying to figure out how do we deal with this? Because it is, if it hasn't already, gotten to a point where it is a hazard. It is a pollution hazard. That's right. And I think the fact that you go out every day on your walk or shopping or whatever, and you see them lying in the street and in the gutter is a real indication of what we're facing. And on one level, it's frustrating and maddening because these masks are there in those locations for one reason. That's because the person who wore it dropped it. And if you're out and about and you take off your mask or you want to discard your mask, dispose it in the proper place. You know, you're not walking around the world or the, uh, your neighborhood or something with your household waste and dropping it all, all along the path as you go, uh, clean up your mask. That's a pretty simple uh, instruction. It's pretty easy to understand. And it's frustrating that uh, there are so many masks that are out there. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Laura Parker. She's a senior staff writer at National Geographic. She covers climate change and oceans. And we're talking about what's going to happen with all those discarded face masks. And is there a way to stop them from polluting the planet? And Laura, you write, it's not just masks. It's gloves, wipes, as you point out, are made from multiple plastic fibers. And again, also not recyclable. That's correct. And I would make the, say the same thing about all PPE needs to be disposed of properly in a bag that is uh, sealed or tied up so that it doesn't get loose. Are environmental groups, are they starting to tackle this issue? Are we starting to have this conversation anywhere in any agency about what to do now, starting the initiatives to collect these masks? That's an interesting question. A lot of the focus of plastic waste, as you know, has been has evolved around a conversation. Are we producing too much plastic? Are there types of plastic packaging that maybe could be reduced and there would be less packaging, so on and so forth? And I think that really is in a, in a separate category from masks that are in a pandemic that we all hope will is on a decline and receding. And at some point in the future, um, the world will not be masked up and having to walk around uh, with PPE. And so while there's a lot of attention being pointed to the problem of 
PPE in terms of how just the volume that's been produced, that it is, they are disposable items and it add to plastic waste to the accumulation of it. I'm not uh, seeing conversations about, well, we need to make masks in a different way, or we, you know, the kind of conversations that are made that are occurring about a, a piece of, let's say, for example, uh, plastic packaging that is, mm-hmm. you know, you buy an object and it's wrapped in a filmy thing, which is put inside a plastic container, but which is put inside another plastic container. And so the question becomes, do we really need this much packaging? Mm-hmm. You are not seeing that kind of conversation occur around PPE. Laura, we should note, as you pointed out, these items, the mask, gloves, wipes, what have you, they also pose a threat to wildlife. Yes, there was a, a study recently that cataloged the kinds of things that are happening. Birds have been tangled up. They get tangled up in the loops that go over your ears. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been birds that have taken the mask part of the mask to use in nest building. These are all one-offs. You know, there'll be examples of an animal, a fox, a squirrel, and so forth. Uh, There was a fish that got documented, and I think there were photos on the internet of a fish that managed to get inside a glove and, and could not escape. And these are kind of getting attention now because we haven't seen that kind of thing before, because... The pandemic is, is even though it's uh, we've been doing it for what seems like forever, mm-hmm. it hasn't been that long. And I would point out that uh, let's not forget that animals and, and marine animals and wildlife have been getting entangled in the usual plastic waste for a very long time with very heartbreaking and tragic, sad results. So if seeing it, animals stuck in PPE serves as a reminder that we have a general problem with plastic litter floating around out there uh, and trapping animals, um, then maybe that's a, a good message. And Laura, as we wrap up, what's next for you and your reporting on all of this? You report on so many different areas as it relates to climate change and the environment. Are you going to stay on this topic and follow up? National Geographic is has uh, been committed to writing about plastic pollution as a pretty big topic. Uh, there's a lot of interest in it on, in the part of the environmental community. It's not as an issue going to go away anytime soon. It's only really going to get worse. Uh, The numbers that have come out in the last year is that if we cannot get our arms around this and find some solutions, the amount of plastic waste in the oceans will triple by 2040. Mm -hmm. So yes, we will uh, keep paying attention. Laura Parker is a senior staff writer at National Geographic. Laura, thank you so much for your piece. Yes, it's been nice talking with you.
Now there's more closer look in just a moment, but a programming note coming up on tomorrow's program, Dr. Bernard Thomas, an associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University joins me. He recently authored an op piece that was published in The Conversation, an independent nonprofit news organization about Georgia's new controversial voting law and why he believes the law may not change election outcomes for now. You have extensive research in political parties, electoral systems, and research methodology. And I'm curious, though, what do you make of the number of state legislatures that already passed more than 20 laws this year alone? Well, let's begin by saying that that the intent of the law, at least one of the intentions, is in fact voter suppression. There is, there's no doubt about the fact that the idea behind it or the goal behind it is in order to keep people who would uh, support the Democratic Party to be less likely to vote. So the idea is to increase the cost of voting, making it harder and hoping that it would be enough in order to to shave off votes in order to swing elections. In other words, right now, in all the states that you look, at least the main states you're looking at, Mm -hmm. these are states that are taking lots of different steps to try to protect their position, their control over it. And that control looks like it's slowly slipping away. And so they're taking various steps. Probably the most famous and effective is gerrymandering, but also includes voter suppression. I don't think you can look at these laws and interpret them any other way. Mm -hmm. They're so kind of obvious, uh, maybe not as blatant as other types of voter suppression laws, but it's obvious because I don't see how you could find any other explanation for them other than them being voter suppression. The other thing is it's also intended, it seems to be a signal to uh, Trump supporters that, that, you know, they're, they're going along with, what is now commonly and correctly referred to as the big lie that Donald Trump had actually won the election and that now somehow they're going to fix things so that this doesn't happen again. So these are basically the two reasons for it. Um, And so this is a serious matter. It's that the voting should be easy uh, and, and, States, some states are making it so that it's not so easy for certain groups in the population. And we should note, because we've been checking in with the Brennan Center for Justice in New York, and overall, lawmakers have introduced at least, listen to this number, 389 what they call restrictive bills in 48 states this year during legislative sessions, which includes either pre-filed or carried over. And the Brennan Center professor uses 2011 as sort of this benchmark for the last time this wave of these restrictive laws were enacted. Of course, that came right after the 2010 midterm elections, which were disastrous results for the Democrats in the state houses. Going back to that time, you see the same similarities in terms of why Republican, and these are Republican-led state houses, are doing this. There are some similarities there because of who was elected in the previous presidential election. 
Yes. Point I mean, that's a that's a big part of it. I mean, the a lot of this was set off from from uh, Obama winning the presidency. 2010 wound up being a kind of a disastrous year for the Democrats. But this is also part of a long term strategy within the Republican Party, the kind of the Karl Rove strategy of 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 doing any steps possible in order to win power. And so and even that you can trace it back to to Newt Gingrich. Uh, lots of steps in order to and, and taking steps that the Democrats were not even aware that was going on. It was it's not that it's any more clever than anything the Democrats did. It's just going farther than than anyone would have expected. So what you're seeing is a long term pattern of the Republicans taking steps that would uh, tilt elections in their favor. I mean, if we were, were talking about other aspects of this, we'd, you'd see that that the elections are severely biased in the Republican Party favor. And when I say bias, we, we mean this in the very statistical sense. The, the, the Republicans can win all kinds of levels of office with fewer votes than Democrats. Democrats actually have to outperform Republicans consistently and repeatedly in order in order to win. Some of that just happens. Some of it's just that's demographics, but some of it's by design. So so it's, it's a, part of what's going on, as you're saying, is it's is a reaction to 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 Obama having won the presidency, but but it's also part of a long term strategy that's going on. So we're kind of seeing with these 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 new voter laws yet another step in the same direction. Join us for that conversation tomorrow with Dr. Bernard Thomas, associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The COVID-19 pandemic, here's what we know, right? Changed the entire world, amplified existing disparities, challenged science to develop vaccines within a year, and disrupted the global supply chain. Perhaps the latter wasn't a major focus highlighted in the news, but for neighboring nations like the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, This COVID-19 era of global supply chain has been in a mode of resilience and now reset. Joining me to talk about this and some other issues is Canada's Acting Council General of the Southeast, Louise Blay. It's a position she's actually held before from 2014 to 2017 and since has also served as Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Blay, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Glad to have you back. Thank you, Ms. Scott. Really happy to be here with you. You know, I've asked everybody this question for over a year, so I might as well make sure you have an opportunity to answer it as well. What do you make of this last year with the pandemic and and not only here in North America, but around the world? Well, this last year has been really the very first global crisis to hit every single part of the world. No one was left untouched. And whether um, it was the disease itself or its economic impact, uh, everyone has been affected. So as we now slowly come out of this uh, 
very difficult year. I think it's very important to make sure that we come out of it uh, with a global mindset, that we lift everyone uh, out of this uh, crisis and that we leave no one behind. And Ambassador Blay, before we get into our conversation regarding global supply chain and, and what the consulate has been doing to help Canadians living here in the Atlanta area, I do want to get your thoughts on what is been a horrific discovery on the grounds near the Kamloops Indian Residential School in Canada. The remains of 215 children in unmarked graves, bones belonging to Indigenous children forced to attend the school and reports of physical and sexual abuse from decades ago. Your thoughts regarding this? I have to say that this discovery has basically thrown the entire country into national mourning. Uh, While stories from residential schools, of course, were generally known for for quite some time, when I grew up in Canada, when I was going to school, I had no idea that we had these schools around the country. So it wasn't something that was discussed or very well known. Um, But now with this this terrible discovery, I think uh, the country is that much more committed to our truth and reconciliation uh, efforts to give the victims the voice that they need, the recognition of their suffering so that they can move on and Canada as a nation can learn from this terrible, terrible chapter in our history and uh, be a better nation um, moving forward. In fact, your Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it, quote, a painful reminder of that dark and shameful chapter of our country's history. Uh, You are now in an acting role as Council General of Canada, overseeing several southeastern states. Quite different than last time as you talked about the pandemic. How has the consulate been helping Canadians here in the Atlanta area since all of this began? So as many uh, know, we have had to take measures at the border and we have done so with the uh, U.S. government in um, full partnership. But we have had to basically close the border for non-essential travel. Mm-hmm. That has affected a lot of Canadians here in the United States. I was affected myself. My mother passed away uh, of COVID in December. I have yet to be able to go back and mourn with my family. We are waiting for everyone to be vaccinated so we can truly be together. So those kinds of stories are multiplied uh, hundreds folds across the United States. Canadians want to go back home. Um, They want to be with their loved ones again. So we are working with them um, in terms of providing information about the travel restrictions. And of course, uh, here in the United States, we have been incredibly grateful for the generosity of the U.S. government and including Canadian citizens in their uh, vaccination program. And of course, we throughout the pandemic ensured that Canadians followed local guidelines on uh, to keep themselves and their family uh, safe. Ambassador Blade, first of all, my condolences on the passing of your mother. How have you managed to get through that? It. Uh, It was extremely difficult. And I think the only comfort that that I personally had was that my brother was allowed to be with her. My father being too old and fragile to do this, uh, expose himself potentially to the disease, but my brother was there holding her hand as she uh, uh, passed on. And, And by phone and technology, we were able to be there with him. 
and speak to her and, and say goodbye. That made a huge difference. And I think it's true to say that technology, without this technology that allows me to speak to you now, um, I think the pandemic would have been that much more difficult to, to go through. There wouldn't have been remote learning for children and, and so on and so forth. So let's be grateful that uh, this incredible technology has allowed uh, some of those, uh, some of those, um, um, how should I say, uh, tools to get through it. And as you mentioned, the border is closed. And right now the CDC does list Canada as a level four which is a very high level of COVID-19 in Canada. Are you all having challenges in getting Canadians vaccinated? So we are a little bit behind in terms of um, vaccination for the second dose, but actually on the first dose now, we have caught up with the United States. The reason for our slower start is the fact that we do not have manufacturing capabilities in Canada for the vaccine. So we were dependent on these uh, purchase agreements that we had signed way back last year with some of the companies to get our vaccines delivered to us. So that was the major difference. And that, in a way, brings us to another issue that the mm -hmm. pandemic has un, un, uh, revealed, if I can say, is the issue of supply chain and access to either essential goods, whether they be medical or otherwise. And I think there is a great deal of reflection going on in Canada, as well as in the United States, uh, to, um, to say, well, wait a second, we really should make sure that we are self-sufficient to some degree for those essential goods, uh, because uh, there might be another pandemic or there might be other trade disruptions in the future. That's a great segue into our conversation because my question was going to be, how has this pandemic and with the border being closed impacted the nation's overall economy? If you had to assess it, this past year, well, now for more than a year, if you were the economist and I writing the story about this last year, what would you say? The story I would say is that um, the economy is very resilient, surprisingly so. However, what we have seen here in North America and around the world is it has disproportionately affected uh, lower income and certain marginalized groups. Women, children being among them in the developing world have, uh, have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And here in the US and in Canada, what we're seeing now is that those who were better off before the pandemic uh, have fared fairly well, whereas those that were uh, struggling have really lost ground. So moving forward, and this is why we have a, a roadmap that the Prime Minister uh, Trudeau and President Biden have, uh, have put, um, have created with all of their cabinet is the issue of, we have to make sure that we build back better, that, the, that this is a reset and that we have to build economies that are not only resilient, but equitable uh, for everyone. Um, and so this is what we're working very closely with the United States on. We really wanna lift uh, everyone up as we recover from the pandemic. In terms of the region as a whole, we talk about North America, and obviously we talk about the important economic partnership with your neighboring nations, obviously the U.S. and Mexico. What concerns do you have as it relates to 
this supply chain being disrupted? And do you think that there needs to be another or some type of other? Now, we don't want to get into the conversation about the uh, revamping the, the North American <laughs> trade agreement. That's a whole nother show. But do you think there needs to be a conversation with all three nations because of what has happened with the pandemic? There, maybe there needs to be some adjustment there at all. I believe there has to be a, a, a conversation about this. Mm -hmm. These past three and a half years that I have spent at the United Nations have only uh, convinced me more of this. I think as we see the world today, there are, uh, there are clouds on the horizons. Uh, we are in a uh, competitive mode with uh, countries like China in particular. The relationship with China is uh, as is probably as has never been as difficult as it is, mm -hmm. uh, certainly for Canada and and for the United States. What that will and there is a competition around the world, a competition of influence. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about what this means and what might happen that might disrupt uh, supply chains. It may not be a I'm not predicting a military confrontation, mm -hmm. but there could be. Um, there could be the kinds of tensions in the Pacific that would cut off some of those important um, goods that travel that we count on that that manufacturing uh, the manufacturing industry is counting on. There's a lot of talk about semiconductors mm -hmm. and chips uh, being uh, being scarce and and holding back the economy in the United States. So that's a prime example of why I think we need to think about how can we work together to go beyond USMCA, to go beyond this, this, this NAFTA agreement and really think about economic security, mm -hmm. making sure that we bring some of those um, essential um, supply chains back to our own hemisphere. And that involves not just our three countries, it involves mm -hmm. Latin America mm -hmm. and I think and Central America. So I think we should really be taking uh, a closer look at this last week. Um, the vice president announced that they had come into agreements with MasterCard and Microsoft uh, to invest in manufacturing capabilities in the south and south of the border, mm -hmm. uh, south of Mexico. And those are the kinds of um, those are the kinds of initiatives I think that we uh, have to work very closely together. It will make our hemisphere more secure and more peaceful and more prosperous. If you're just joining the conversation, this is Closer Look and I'm Rose Scott. Our conversation right now is with Canada's Acting Council General, Louise Blay, a position she's actually held before from 2014 to 2017 and has served as an ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Blay, let's talk about uh, competition in terms of products and trade. Here in the United States, and there's been a push, not just with the Biden administration, but certainly before uh, with the Trump administration, buying more American, producing products right here in this nation. But do you have concerns about that? Because as you mentioned, it's competition, not just around the world, but competition just with, with your neighboring nations, with the U.S. What concerns do you have about that? So Canada is the United States' number one customer. Uh, we buy more goods and services from the U.S. than any other country. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, you have a trade surplus with us. It is a very good relationship for the United States. Uh, at the same time, we, we help you uh, with your supplies and, and making sure that your manufacturing remains competitive internationally. So it's a, 
it's, it's really a beneficial partnership for all of us. So as uh, we understand the Buy America um, principle, we, we understand it, we get it. But we believe that we can make America stronger if we work together because we've got complementarity uh, with your economy and we're also a huge customer. Same, I would include Mexico in this. Mm -hmm. I think we'd like to see a North America approach to, uh, to, to this philosophy because, um, because it would be beneficial to all Americans. So this is what we're advocating um, in Washington and with elected officials. And, and certainly I have had, I have only received positive feedback from this, from uh, whether uh, local officials, governors, or, or uh, federally elected officials, they understand. But we just have to make sure that, that we don't, Canada doesn't end up being uh, excluded by accident. So we have to work uh, very um, diligently to make sure that there are no provisions of the infrastructure bill, for example, that somehow uh, discriminates against Canada and inadvertently potentially. And we certainly know that products such as lumber, um, some steel products that have been used to, in, in building some major developments here in the Atlanta area, Mercedes-Benz Stadium being one. I want to shift just for a moment because you mentioned this earlier about in your role as ambassador to the United Nations and how that has probably helped you. And now you've come back, although just on, in the role of acting, and how is that helping you? So I, when I went uh, to the UN, I, uh, I went with the perspective of the Canada-US relationship that was very bilateral. But as I worked, uh, my responsibility at the UN was to run for our campaign for the UN Security Council. Canada is not a permanent member, so we have to run. Mm -hmm. And in the process of, of, of running that global campaign, I really, it really opened my eye about the importance of that relationship, our lucky Canada and the US are to have each other as neighbors. When you look at all the conflicts going around uh, that we have around the world, whether in the Middle East or elsewhere, you really do realize that good neighbors are everything. And, um, and it made me appreciate it more. And at the same time, it made me understand the place that it has globally. We have a responsibility um, as, as two free nations. To, uh, to work together to help other nations around the world. We will never have a peaceful world if we don't invest in it. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, others will. And so it has really made me realize that we, uh, uh, we have to put the Canada-US relationship in, a, in its global context. Mm -hmm. and, and that uh, can only inform our decisions uh, and make sure that we make the right ones. Are you more encouraged in having a stronger relationship with the U.S. under a Biden administration as opposed to if it was a Trump administration? Well, the relationship will always be strong. It, it, it's just it's I think it, it can um, it, 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 it's. It has it is too it is too integrated not to be, mm -hmm. however, um, we are seeing with the Biden administration a re-engagement globally. And certainly I can tell you in the few months that uh, the diff I felt the difference since I was in, in, uh, in New York until the end of March, there was a sea change in the way in which the U.S. engaged at the U.N. Um, 
much more uh, leaning forward, um, uh, more uh, collaborative with other nations. It's just a different vision of the world order and its architecture. And that I can say that that has been welcomed at the UN. And uh, the world is welcoming this return to this, this uh, positive engagement. Something else that was very noticeable with the pandemic, as I mentioned coming into this segment in the opening in terms of disparities, we know here in the US nearly 5 million women have left the workforce. Uh, and then globally, we know the impact of the pandemic on women and girls in certain nations. You were very instrumental in working on the, the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which included gender equality for women and girls, but that's been that's been kind of put aside for now. Um, what are your hopes that you all can get this initiative going again? There is no doubt that unfortunately the pandemic has set us back. Uh, the 2030 Agenda was always ambitious. Mm -hmm. It was always going to be challenging to meet its targets, its goals, there's 17 of them. Uh, if you think that women and girls and women in, in general are catalytic in terms of achieving all of the goals, then unfortunately, this uh, regression that we've been experiencing over the past year is extremely worrisome. And this is why Canada, uh, with our feminist foreign policy or feminist development policy, is looking very closely with our international allies, as well as the UN system, UNICEF, and many of the ag agencies to make sure that in the recovery from the pandemic, we put women and girls first and front uh, and center to um, to the recovery. That means helping. That means bringing them back to school. That means uh, uh, giving them economic empowerment opportunities. That means making sure that they're at the table of some of these decisions being made. It has been proven time and time again that when you include women, you get better outcomes. So we really have to continue to push this and hope that we can make up for some of the lost ground. Uh, that we have had over the past year. And it's, it's heartbreaking uh, what is happening around the world to women. And I understand you are writing a book on feminine leadership. <laughs> yes, I, I am. And it's based, it's, it's loosely biographical, but it's um, the principle of it is that for the first half of my career, I led like a man. I, I, had, I was emulating uh, masculine leadership, and it got me far what enough. Mean? What does it mean? I know our listeners are saying. Um, explain. That. I was, um, I was not um, espousing my feminine side, so I was not being the nurturer, the encourager, the unconditional love that women. Uh, not to say that men don't have those, but we are raised to develop those, and 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 it's socially accepted that we have these things and become part of our personality. I have discovered the hard way that um, being authentic and being my feminine self is actually better for my teams and, and creates better outcomes. Because when you invest in people first, as opposed to results, uh, you get further along and you have, because happier teams deliver um, better. So I've, that's really a, a synthesis of it. It's too many of us women 
or as we climb up the ladder, uh, try to espouse authoritative, um, um, more uh, results first, no nonsense kind of leadership. Sometimes we deny, and it's not for every woman, we denied our true power and the true power is in being ourselves and trusting that that is not a sign of weakness or vulnerability. And the vulnerability in fact is helpful uh, to, um, to the teams you lead if you show your human side, which when I was starting out in my career, you really kind of repressed. So I, call, I talk about repressed um, feminism and the damage it can do to us as, as women and as people and, and the lost opportunities for our teams. Because people can smell when they don't see authenticity. Do you think that formula works for every woman? No, I, 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 no, I do not believe that it does. And I think I, I wouldn't want to generalize. There are different kinds of leadership. I think the best organizations actually uh, are able to uh, include diverse leaders in their organization, those who employ different kinds of leadership. I think teams respond, different employees respond differently to different types of leadership. So one has to be careful. But I think my message is one has to be authentic. And unfortunately, many of us women uh, have been misled into thinking that one certain type of leadership was the only one that was going to be the winner. And um, if it happened to me, I'm sure it has happened to other women out there. So that's why I'm writing the book. Ambassador Blade, as we wrap up, what has been, other than the pandemic, because I know it's been the big difference in when you served as council general for those three years, and then now as acting council general, what's, what's been different about serving here in the Southeast? Well, I, uh, I was very happy to come back. This is a place I, uh, I really love. I, um, I see it with different eyes now. There has been a lot of changes, whether you look at um, political changes in the South. Um, it's a different place that I left um, in many ways. And I think there are the dialogue that we're having. We're doing a great deal on uh, diversity and inclusion. This is not something we were doing four years ago when I was here. So now, it's, you know, there are different kinds of um, uh, thematics and subjects that we're now tackling that we weren't doing back then. And that's, and that's I think, a very good thing. I think we're talking more about certain issues that we, we were not addressing when I was here last. And, but there's a lot of, we all have to do a lot uh, of work moving forward. Uh, it's the same in Canada. So we're trying to work together on some of those issues. Would you like the acting part to be removed? And would you, could you return to just being the official council general here in the Atlanta area for the Southeast? That, that would be wonderful, but my government has different plans for me. I, uh, I have an assignment waiting for me in the fall. And, uh, and, uh, but coming back, I think has been a, a gift for me because um, I left very quickly when uh, my government asked me, my prime minister asked me to go to New York to run the campaign. It was just kind of happened within a month. And now I'm back and I'm able to do some of the things that I didn't have time to do when I was here last. And, and I'm very happy to be able to advance the relationship. It's, 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 it's a relationship that I think is, is so important to both our countries. And so it's, a, it's an honor to be back here. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying every single minute. Have you been able to get out now that, uh, you know, some of the, those restrictions we were all under last year have been lifted now? 
Well, I must say, in, in many ways, it's a great time to be back. It's a time of renewal, of, of reemergence, of, of, of uh, the mood is better. People are getting out. And I've been enjoying, of course, I, um, uh, all the restrictions being removed and being able to go out to restaurants and, and, and enjoy uh, uh, getting together with old friends. And so in a way, it's a very, very important time to be back. And this is why it was important to make sure that the consulate here had uh, leadership because my predecessor successor left uh, um, early and, and the new consul general will be coming only in the fall. Mm -hmm. And this is too important a region not to have um, uh, at least an acting consul general. Um, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really an honor for me to be back. Canada's acting council general, Louise Blay, a position she's actually held before from 2014 to 2017, and since then has served as ambassador and deputy permanent representative to the United Nations. Ambassador Blay, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Scott. It really was a pleasure for me to see you again. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.